Hey gang, good morning. It is Tuesday, time for our devotion. Uh, every Tuesday morning, I usually gather with you here to go over a portion of God's Word together and to discuss uh, what God's Word has to say to us in the moment. And there is an awful lot that we can talk about today. Uh, in case you didn't know it, this time in the church calendar year, uh, we celebrate the Ascension of Jesus. It's actually happening uh, this Thursday in more traditional churches. You'll, you'll find that they may even have uh, a service commemorating this event. Uh, what, it, uh, what I found is that in uh, sort of, I guess, less traditional uh, church settings, it, the Ascension seems to get uh, short shrift. It doesn't get as much attention as, of course, the, the big parts of the story of Jesus, of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension tends to kind of get left off to the side. But as I hope to show you today, the ascension is just as much a part of the gospel, the good news, as, uh, as all those other parts. And in fact, without the ascension, those other parts don't quite give us all we need in order to stand as righteous children before a holy God. So I uh, hope to be able to, to uh, show a little bit of that today. Uh, to start off, we're going to go ahead and look at Psalm 47, and then I'm going to talk um, briefly just about some of the theology of the Ascension and show why it is such a, a necessary doctrine. Psalm 47 is a Psalm of Ascension. It is uh, depicting the arrival of a great king in his holy city. And what would happen typically when a king would show up to take his throne is there would be this great parade. There'd be this great march. I mean, uh, the closest thing we probably have to it today, although with much more regalia, you know, would be something like the coronation in, um, in the UK that you'll see. And we haven't seen that in quite some time. But, uh, but this idea of all of the city gathering with great anticipation to see the arrival of their new uh, king and their new ruler. That's what's depicted for us here. But of course, the king is not uh, David or not merely uh, an earthly king, but is a divine king. And so with that, way, with that by way of background, we'll pick it up, Psalm 47, verse 1, after I get a swig of Joe. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Now, let me just stop there for a second and note something. Uh, as we look forward in this psalm, and we, we know this was written quite a bit before uh, the coming of Jesus, the assumption that would have been held by most reading this is that the way the king subdued people and indeed put nations under his feet was by uh, conquering them, usually violently, and making sure that uh, that their military and their royalty was not able to fight back. Uh, so, so the assumption was that it was a bloody conquest that caused the king to subdue the peoples. But what do we see happen in the life of Christ? How did Jesus go about subduing people? How did he go about ruling and putting all the nations under his feet. Well, it was actually the exact opposite of what would typically happen. He spilled his blood in order to subdue people. He was the victim of a violent death in order to get people to come to him 
by faith in his name. And so, so there's a reversal here that would not have necessarily been explicit to the first readers of this psalm, but that we can now look back on and go, oh, that's, that's how Jesus goes about ruling the world. And this is one of the reasons that his disciples seem to struggle so much with this idea, as we'll see in a little bit, the disciples don't even understand, even after Jesus's resurrection, that his kingdom is beyond the ways of the kingdoms of this world, that his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Um, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Continuing on with the psalm, Psalm uh, 47, verse 4, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. This is hearkening back to the covenant that he's made with, with, uh, with the people of God, with Jacob and his offspring. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. This is, by the way, uh, if, if you're reminded of some of the end times talk found in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew uh, 24, 23, that area, uh, you would not be off in thinking about that. Remember what Jesus says will happen at the second coming. There will be a shout and there will be a, the loud trumpet blast that comes. And so th that imagery that Jesus uses there is found back in the Old Testament depicting the arrival and coronation of a king. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our, our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth sing praises with a psalm God reigns over the nations God sits on his holy throne the people of Israel had such a localized vision of God that more often than not their typical way of seeing God's rule was over them in particular and then through them he would sort of subdue the nations but what's depicted for us here is that no, God's kingdom is much, much, much broader than that. It is a kingdom for all and rules over all nations. So much so that the end of the psalm says, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Now this is, fan this is really fascinating because this is an allusion to the fact that you're going to have Gentiles, you're going to have non-Jewish people that will somehow show up as the people of the God of Abraham. They're going to somehow be grafted in to God's covenant people. Of course, we know how that happens because of what Jesus Christ does. So this is all pointing to what Jesus has done in his ministry and eventually in his ascension. And then it concludes, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So the psalm is depicting this glorious moment where where God is, uh, where, the, where the Prince of Peace is being crowned and being uh, accepted in the courts of uh, the king and, uh, and, and really at the throne. And that's really what's going on when Jesus ascends. When Jesus ascends, it, what's being told to us is that Jesus has been uh, seen as validated, vindicated, has, has done everything that he set out to do in his mission and has been therefore accepted uh, at the highest place of honor. Let's look at uh, the Ascension passage, maybe one of the central Ascension passages in Acts chapter one, verses six through 11. It says, so when they had come together, that's his disciples, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see that localized sort of uh, very narrow thinking that they've got still? Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then look at what Jesus does to sort of correct their thinking. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Boys, this kingdom is way bigger than you can imagine it is right now. It's way, way bigger. This is a worldwide kingdom for all peoples, all places, at all times. And when he had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the first question I have about this ascension of Jesus, and maybe it occurs to you too, is did he literally sort of lift up into the sky? I mean, is that is that literally what's happening? Is heaven just sort of like up enough? Uh, and is is that what's being depicted for us? Was the writer of the 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 uh, book of Acts, you know, the the good Doctor Luke, was he under this illusion that sort of the sky was heaven? I don't think so. I do think he was lifted up, but I think the most important imagery here is not sort of him going to a place in the sky that we call heaven. No, I, I, I what's going on here? is that this is symbolic of his victory over the world. He's being lifted above the world. The world is being put at his feet. The cloud that he is lifted up into is not just some ordinary rain cloud, but it's the cloud of God's glory. Remember, all throughout the Bible, you have that depicted for us. Back in, whether it's in Moses' time where God shows up in a cloud and the people of God are overwhelmed by his glory, or whether it be uh, the night where Jesus has the transfiguration with Peter and the other couple of disciples and Moses and Elijah shows up. Uh, remember, Peter says, hey, let's camp out here forever. This is a great little camping spot. We'll just stay here on top of the mountain with, you know, Moses and Elijah and you, Jesus, in your sort of glorified state. And what happens? A cloud comes and envelops them and we're told that the cloud is the very presence of God himself. And he says to Peter and the disciples, this is my son, listen to what he has to say. So the cloud here is not necessarily a, a literal cloud, uh, you know, like we'd see in, the, in our sky today. It's not a cumulonimbus cloud. Uh, it's a cloud depicting the glory of God. And this cloud is exalting Jesus and saying, yes, he's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Listen to Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's two things right off the bat that I see we glean from this ascension. First of all, it's, a, it's more sort of implied, but it's there. We see that God's kingdom and the expansion of it is not going to come 
instantaneously like that, but actually it's going to spread slowly over time by his spirit through his church. If you go back to the passage in Acts again, what does Jesus promise his disciples? I'm going to go, but the spirit will come, dwell with you, empower you to go preach the gospel, and it will spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the circle gets wider, all the way to the ends of the earth. And today, that kingdom continues to expand to the ends of the earth. The second thing that sticks out to me about this ascension is related to that. Since he did ascend, that means that we don't have to fret about the success of the mission that he has for his church. He is the one ultimately using us as instruments in his kingdom, just as he promised he would do with his disciples. The second aspect about the ascension, we're told in Ephesians 1, verse 20, that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what does the idea of Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand tell us? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament again, we see that over and over and over again, to be seated at the right hand was to be seated at the highest place of honor. What it also shows us, of course, since he's seated, it reminds us that his redemptive work for us is finished. In other words, when Jesus said it is finished, he didn't have his fingers crossed. He wasn't partially fulfilling things. He meant what he said. It is finished. And that means your salvation is complete in him. All that you need to stand before a holy God, you have seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet he's not done doing something for us. Yes, he's seated. He's accomplished what he set out to do in his mission. But he's still working on our behalf, doing something that the New Testament just extols over and over and over again. As he's seated there, we're told he is always interceding on our behalf. He is our interceding high priest. So he's not merely the king that's taking his throne, but he's also our high priest that stands in the gap between God and sinful people. Listen to Romans 8:34. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7:25. He is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a defense attorney pleading on our behalf. And who is he? He is the righteous one. 
And why will his requests on our behalf to finally save us, always guaranteed, never ending, always be heard? Verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. Because he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, all the judgment, all the wrath that we have stored up for ourselves, Christ has taken upon himself at the cross and therefore has every right to intercede on our behalf and continues to do so each and every day. And of course, how would a high priest intercede on behalf of God's people? Again, we go back to the Old Testament. We see that it's through blood, always, always with blood. And so the picture I always get when I, when I think of Christ as my high priest is of him standing between me and the throne of heaven and constantly sort of holding up his hands and saying, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. And I get to see those hands and I'm reminded, oh yeah, everything I need is found in him and in what he's done there. And so too, the father being satisfied with the sacrifice of the son says, indeed, it is finished for them. And that is what will cause us to one day be greeted with the, the um, amazing words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of our goodness, not because of the strength of our faith, but because of Jesus' goodness and the strength of his faith, ultimately on our behalf, that constantly lives to make intercession for us, our ascended High Priest and King, Jesus Christ our Lord. So hopefully that shows you a little bit today of why the Ascension is so important and why it matters for you still today. I uh, hope you have a great Tuesday, great rest of the week. Look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.